Johnny Saddlebags. Slippery Pete. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Ain't but one thing to do. Yep, start banking at community banks. Say what now? We'll grow this town bigger by doing business with community banks. That way our money will get reinvested locally and help small businesses grow and prosper. Son of a saddle spur. This town will be big enough for the both of us. Help your community grow. Find your community bank at banklocally.org. All right, so we are back with a new case now. Not completely new. I mentioned on Twitter yesterday that I dove back into a case that I did during 31 Days of Crime, and I thought I want to do that with like a few of the cases I went over during 31 Days of Crime because those episodes were only 10 minutes long. So I kind of gave you the overview and gave you an idea of the case, but I wasn't really able to give you the details and really research it as much as I wanted to. So that's what we're doing today. Once again, if you didn't listen to the last few episodes, please go do that. They are about Alyssa Turney, and her sister Sarah Turney is fighting very hard for justice for Alyssa because she hasn't gotten it yet. So go listen to those and go read up on the case. It's a very important case right now. And obviously, like, all cases are important, but this one, it's just very close to a lot of people's hearts. Anyways, I do have a promo from another spooky podcast. Um, I've been listening to a ton of new podcasts in this genre and, like, other spooky ones. So... Hopefully you enjoy it as much as I do. And then we will jump right in to the case. Are you looking for a new podcast to check out? Well, if so, you should give my podcast, All the Things That Keep Us Up at Night, a listen. I talk true crime, missing persons, haunted locations, history behind spooky landmarks, urban legends, and I'll even dabble into some conspiracy theories. And at times, I give my opinions that nobody asks for. Hope you subscribe to my podcast, All the Things That Keep Us Up at Night. Stay spooky, you beautiful weirdos. Okay, so I have been more interested in serial killer cases lately. Like, I'm always interested in them. But lately, I've just been, like, noticing them more, I guess. I'm seeing a ton of them pop up on Twitter. And, like, when I go on my news thing, it seems like there's more. And when I go to read books, it seems like I'm just picking up books about serial killers. I don't know. Might have a slight obsession. But it's just, it's been in my mind and in my eyesight a lot lately. So I thought, perfect time to go over you know, the Oakland County child killer again. This is a case that multiple people could be responsible for or just one. Police aren't sure even all these years later um, because there's a few things in the cases like DNA pointing to the possibility of a group of people and there's also a few things pointing to a singular person such as like eyewitness accounts. 
The Oakland County Child Killer is also known as the Babysitter Killer, which kind of makes sense, kind of doesn't. You'll see what I mean when we get into, like, what the murders actually were and who this person or these people actually killed. It doesn't really make sense to me, but I guess every serial killer needs their own, like, weird little name. That's how we keep track of them. So the confirmed murders were committed in between February 15th of 1976 and March 16th of 1997 in the state of Michigan. Forensics shows that these children were held captive before being killed. I believe the longest time is 19 days in between them going missing and their estimated time of death, which tells us that they were captive somewhere because they were not around their home. The kids that were confirmed as victims of this killer ranged in age from 10 to 12. They were either strangled or shot, and the two males, there's two females that are confirmed and two males that were confirmed, the two males were sexually abused. This whole case, these four murders, triggered the largest murder investigation in the U.S. at that time. Now, since then, we've had bigger investigations and whatnot, but at this time, this was a huge thing, and it scared literally everyone, just as serial killer cases should. Like, you shouldn't just be fine with it, obviously. But it was big news at this time, because they hadn't really experienced something like this before. WXYT Radio did a show called Winter's Fear, The Children, The Killer, The Search, and that won the Peabody Award in 1977. I believe this was more of like going through the cases and stuff and talking about it in more of a narrative form than an actual like show or story, but I don't know. You can probably search it online and find it. Here's the name again if you want to do that. Winter's Fear, The Children, The Killer, The Search. I think it just goes over the case and stuff, but it would probably be very interesting to listen to. There are two suspects that aren't suspected as, like, the main perpetrator, but they are still suspects in the case, if that makes sense. So, basically, there's three suspects overall. The main perpetrator is still completely unknown. Police did complete a DNA profile because from each of the crime scenes, they took DNA and it created this DNA profile. I don't know how they do it, so I'm not going to get into that because I am not a scientific person. Anyways, they put it into the profile and it hasn't matched like anyone yet. None of the tips matched it up with people, and none of the people who are suspected in the case matched it. They've looked at a lot of people. But anyways, there was also some DNA that indirectly implicated these two other people. One is now dead, so we won't get answers from him, and one is in prison for life due to other child offenses. I'm not sure about the one who died, because... You know, he's dead, and it didn't really say much about him. But the one that's in prison for life, he is in there 
because of offenses against children. So that seems very plausible that he could have had something to do with child murders. So during the 31 Days of Crime episode, I wasn't really able to get deep into the suspects or the victims. And I would kind of like to do both now. So first, let's talk about the confirmed victims. So Mark Stebbins was the first one. He was 12 years old, and he did not return home from, I believe, a meeting at an American Legion Hall on February 15th, 1976. Four days later, he was found wearing the exact same clothes he was last seen in. He was lying in a snowbank in the parking lot of a local office building. It was very evident that he had been sexually abused and strangled. He also had two lacerations to the left rear of his head, indicating that he could have been hit in the head probably twice or once if it was like a multi-ended object. There were rope marks marks on both of his wrists and ankles, which makes people believe he was bound during his time in captivity. Now, if I find it somewhere, I'll let you know what the time of death estimate was, because obviously people believe that he was held somewhere, because they mentioned in his captivity. But he was only found four days after going missing, so he wasn't held too long. Still horribly traumatic and horrific, but not as long as some of the others. So the second victim was Jill Robinson. She was 12 years old, and she left her home on December 22nd, 1976. Her mom and her had been arguing about dinner preparations and that's why she left. Um, so I can't even imagine what this mom felt when her daughter didn't come home after that or when they found the body. That's just awful. The following day, though, her bike was found behind a local hobby shop before her body was found like along Interstate 75 in Troy. This one was weird because... Her body was found within view of the police station, and that was on the morning of December 26th, so once again, four days after she left. Her cause of death was a shotgun wound to the face with a 12-gauge shotgun, and her body was fully clothed and wearing the backpack she had taken with her when she left home. So there's, in both of these instances, it's just these kids lying there in, like, seemingly untouched, just, well, I mean, besides, like, the shotgun and, like, all the trauma to their body. I'm saying, like, their clothes looked untouched, and they just, they were just lying in snowbanks in such easy-to-see areas. For me, this is kind of telling me the killer was a pretty cocky killer, like, he's placing his second victim in view of the police station. Someone could have so easily seen him. Or just, I don't know. If I was going to kill someone, I definitely would not do that. 
because that's almost like wanting to get caught. And they were both found in snowbanks, which I believe the snowbank thing and like steaming or like ironing the clothes were the big things for this guy that kind of made him an oddity and kind of connected the cases. If I remember correctly, the clothes were like newly pressed. They were wearing the clothes that they went missing in, but it's like he took them off of them, pressed them, and put them back on, which in some sense is kind of nice, but it's just very odd. So the third victim was the youngest. Her name was Christine Mihalik, and she was 10 years old. She was reported missing on January 2nd, 1977. She had gone out to a 7-Eleven store in Oakshire, and she never came back. 19 days later, she was found on the side of a road in Franklin Village by a mail carrier. Once again, her body was fully clothed, and she was just laying right next to a road. That's another thing we see here. They're always like placed right next to a road like the killer wants their bodies to be found and he's risking getting caught so much but it's his just what he does now it's his mo anyway she had been smothered to death less than 24 hours earlier and her body lay within views of nearby homes again cocky killer could have been caught at any minute and he just that's where he wanted to place her but see, this one gives us like a timeline. So if she had been killed less than 24 hours earlier, she was held captive for at least 18 days. That's a long time to hide a kid, especially a kid that everyone is searching for. And this is the case that kind of strung all three of these together. When they found Christine, they strung Jill and Mark along with it, and this is when the announcement came out of a possible serial killer at work. The police figured out these cases are too alike. You know, there could be a serial killer that's working against us and killing kids. So the fourth confirmed victim is Timothy King. He was 11 years old. He went to a drugstore on the night of March 17th, Sorry, March 16th, 1977. After he failed to get home, a huge search started because now they were aware that there's a serial killer on the loose killing kids around Timothy's age. We gotta go look for him. So there was an intense search covering the entire like Detroit metropolitan area and his body was then found six days later, by two teenagers in a shallow ditch, once again alongside a road in Livonia. So, this killer stuck with everything he wanted to. He held the kids captive, and then he killed them, pressed the clothes, and put them alongside a road, normally in a snowbank. It was found out that Timothy King had also been sexually assaulted, and suffocated no more than six hours earlier. So he was at least held for five full days as well. 
There are two suspected victims, and these were some other abductions and murders in the Oakland County area within the same period. They're not, like, specifically tied to the other four victims, but, I mean, serial killers change up what they do sometimes. There, We do look for an MO all the time. I know that's a word a lot of people hear, and when there's a serial killer at large, they're like, oh, his MO is this, but in reality, we know very little about serial killers, and their MO could change on a whim. They are psychotic people, and it's just, you can't really figure them out. You can't just keep them on one thing and then go from there. So, Cynthia Cadu, Cadu, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this name. The last name is spelled C-A-D-I-E-U-X. She was 16 years old and a resident of Roseville. She was found dead on January 16th, 1976 in Bloomfield Township, and she had been bludgeoned to death. So there's nothing really linking her to it. This kind of seems more like a passion killing, just because it doesn't seem she was held for any period of time, and she was bludgeoned to death. But the killer could have gotten angry that like police were getting on his trail or something along those lines and she he just had to kill someone I don't know I don't really know how to explain a serial killer's mind because once again I don't know what it is so the next suspected victim was Jane Allen she was 14 years old when she died and she was found in a river in Miamisburg Ohio on August 11th 1976 She was missing for about four days. She had accepted a ride while hitchhiking in Royal Oak, and she wasn't seen again until they found her body. It was stated that she died from carbon monoxide poisoning, which is kind of an interesting way to kill someone, I think, but I guess that could kind of make it look like it's a more natural death than just plain-out murder. There is one disproved case. People believed it could have been connected to the Oakland County child killer, but it was found not to be. And that is Sheila Schrock. She was 14 years old, and she was raped and shot dead while babysitting in Birmingham on January 20th, 1976. Oliver Rhodes Andrews was found to be the perpetrator here. He had robbed several homes earlier that evening, and then there was a witness to him being around the neighborhood, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. So justice was served in that case. There is one possible case, and that is Kimberly Alice King. She was 12 years old, and she was from Warren on September 15th, 1979. Authorities believe she was abducted, and they've never found her body, but a lot of people believe that her disappearance is connected to the unsolved killings. The only reason I don't think it could be is because 
the killer was very adamant about putting his victims out where people could see them. And, like, I know I said the MO changes, but that just seems like a big change. Like, the other ones he placed in view of a police station or in view of homes, and now all of a sudden he's hiding someone for 40 years or he killed them and he hid their body so good that they haven't been found even to now. But I also looked at the date, and it was September 15th, 1979, and all the strings of confirmed victims ended March 16th, 1997. So maybe he found that, oh, the police are catching on to me, but then he got that urge to kill again, and he just knew he had to switch it up and not make it an evident murder and not make it seem like it was connected to the other ones. So jumping into like the investigation part of this, like I said, after finding Christine's body, law enforcement linked the cases of Mark and Jill to her as well. And this is what caused panic. This sent out the memo that there is a possible serial killer around the Detroit area and he's going after children. So because of this, a task force was created with officers coming from 13 different counties around the area. The sole purpose of this task force was to find this killer. But um, then sadly, there was a fourth confirmed victim, Timothy King. So this is the one that actually had a witness to it. A woman said she witnessed a kid with a skateboard, which we now know was Timothy King, talking to a man in a parking lot or in the parking lot of the drugstore that Timothy disappeared from. That's where he had been going, and then he never came back. So this gave people something to go off of, finally. They weren't just in the dark anymore. Like, oh my goodness, there's this killer. We don't even know what he looks like, what he does, how he tricks kids, any of that. But now... There was a composite sketch of the face and his blue AMC gremlin. So all gremlin owners in Oakland County were questioned. And that obviously didn't lead anywhere because this is still an unsolved case. The suspect was described and sketched as a white man between 25 to 35. He had a dark complexion and he had shaggy hair with sideburns. He was suspected to be able to move around a lot as he wanted, signifying a flexible job and maybe one that made him appear trustworthy to children. Because as a kid, you're like, oh, cops are good, teachers are good. You just, you know who, like, the stereotypical good people are. So if a killer wanted to get a kid, the easiest way to do that would be to dress as someone they trust. He also needed an area where he could keep the children without others knowing. So there's a few ways you could go with this. Either he was just so good at hiding them that he hid them in plain sight, or he had to live out in the county with no close neighbors so that they wouldn't hear the kids or see the kids, so nothing would happen. Over 18,000 tips came in. And something really good that came out of these tips was 24 people involved in a child pornography ring were arrested. They found this ring through these tips, 
for the killer, and they arrested all these people. However, there was no killer caught, and the group disbanded in 1978. So, as of today, people are still looking into, like, exactly what's going on in this case and trying to figure out if all these pieces are connected or if there was a copycat or if there's even more cases. Like I said, there's four confirmed ones, but serial killers could have just a list of a bunch of other ones that we don't know about. So this is where I'm going to end this episode because there's a lot in the suspect and persons of interest part of this case. There are some really weird letters we're going to have to get into and some really like conspiracy type stuff, which I'm excited for because conspiracies are my other love. (laughs) So we are going to get into all the suspects and weird stuff going on in this case on Thursday because that'll probably be more of a 45 minute episode and this one's already at like 25. So I really, I don't want to make over an hour long episode but I want to be able to discuss the suspects as thoroughly as I want. So come back on Thursday and we will get right into the suspects and I'll get to share all this fun, weird stuff with you. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved. I post on there maybe a little too much. I'm a little obsessed. I kind of love Twitter. But I post on there a lot, and I share a lot of other podcasts that I love listening to. So if you need more, just follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved. We also have a Instagram now, and it's at The Great Unsolved. I post on there daily, and I also share other podcasts on there. So, you know, just come be part of the fun Instagram, Twitter community. I have also started putting each podcast on YouTube just so that people have another way to listen to it. I only have two up right now because it takes me forever to convert the MP3 to an MP4 and then put in a picture. It just takes me a long time. So I'm working on it. I promise they're all going to be up on there eventually. It's just taken me a little bit. So go check that out too. That's under my name. That's just under Alexis Ruberg. It's not under The Great Unsolved because I'm not tech savvy and I honestly don't know how to change the name. We're just going to be honest there. I don't know. There's a bunch of other stuff I did. I've been going through and doing like every form of social media. So on here and on Twitter, on Instagram, we have our link tree, which if you click on it, it'll pop up with buttons like Apple, Spotify, Patreon, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. And you can click on it and it'll link you to our page. So just go check that out. Anyways, I hope you all have a good night and we will see you again on Thursday for the continuation of the Oakland County Child Killer.
good time starts with a great wardrobe. Next stop, JCPenney. Family get-togethers to fancy occasions, wedding season too. We do it all in style. Dresses, suiting, and plenty of color to play with. Get fixed up with brands like Liz Claiborne, Worthington, Stafford, and Jay Farrar. Oh, and thereabouts for kids. Super cute and extra affordable. Check out the latest in-store. And we're never short on options at jcp.com. All dressed up, everywhere to go. JCPenney. Wireless headphones. That'll be $200. I'll use my Capital One Quicksilver card. Now that's a hit. You used the Capital One Quicksilver card, which makes you the hero of every purchase. With Quicksilver, you earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere. I wanted running music, but unlimited 1.5% cash back is pretty heroic. Good instincts. Every hero needs a theme song. The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.